Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Diane LeClaire. And in case you don't know it, um, Ben is one of my most important people in my life. Um, I consider him a second son. And actually, if you don't know this, um, before Ben started, um, I was actually interim pastor at Euclid for about six months which I enjoyed very much, but I'm glad that I could give the church into such good hands. And I'm glad that the church, so I thank you, that you have given Ben the opportunity to have this sabbatical. I know that he has needed rest. So today um, I would like us to turn to the gospel lesson in the lectionary passages. And that would be out of Matthew 22. Um, Jesus is asked a very interesting question about whether or not um, we should pay taxes. So let's uh, read that. It's uh, Matthew 22. And uh, it will begin with verse 15. I'm reading out of the NIV version. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. We come to this particular passage, having already uh, traveled through some of Jesus's most um, well-known parables. So where have we been in the lectionary for the last few weeks? Well, we've been, uh, first of all, that I want to reference is the parable of the vineyard. If you remember that, um, it really is an intended message to the Pharisees that um, they are grumbling because they've been there the longest amount of time and yet they are paid uh, the same amount as those who have come later. And then we have the scene of Jesus in the temple where this is, we, is where we see or we'd like to talk about um, Jesus uh, showing his righteous indignation. And so we all like to point to this and saying, look, Jesus got angry, sometimes to justify ourselves for getting angry. But really what is happening there 
um, is that Jesus is deeply disturbed that the temple has become a marketplace. But even deeper than that, he knows that those who are selling the sacrifices are really uh, cheating, particularly those who are too poor um, to be able to um, pay the prices that they are, have um, raised to such a degree. And Jesus is very angry at that, and we know that he turns over the tables. And then we have the parable of the tenants, where Jesus is uh, incredibly direct. You know, I have, meaning God here, I've sent you prophets. I even sent my own son. Uh, you killed the prophets, and you killed my son and he turns the question then to what should the um, tenant the owner of the land do to the tenants and if there's any question that um, Jesus was beating around the bush or speaking in such parables that um, people had to have them explained it was very clear in this parable of the tenants that he's speaking directly to the Pharisees and what is in their hearts. And then we have the parable of the wedding banquet. And without going into the whole story, um, what we know is really at the end, um, again, the Pharisees are sitting without the wrong clothes. They have the wrong clothes on. And who the party um, was originally intended for was the Pharisees. And yet they rejected um, the bridegroom. And so Jesus uh, calls others, you know, out on the streets. And yet um, a Pharisee makes their way into the wedding and is called out because they have not worn the appropriate clothes, which we might interpret as the right kind of humility. Well, you can imagine at this point that uh, the Pharisees have had it. Uh, Jesus has no longer um, been subtle, as I said. The Pharisees are the ones um, that he excludes from the party, the ones who have um, made threats to what God truly intends um, in our religious fervor. And so we are told here at the beginning of our passage that um, they begin to plot. The plotting begins, which we know will lead Jesus uh, to a cross of their making. So let's talk about the conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees' disciples. Notice that the Pharisees did not come themselves in this situation, but their disciples um, go and confront Jesus. We also know that there is a group of Herodians who come along. Now, who in the world are the Herodians? Uh, they're not particularly a religious group, but followers of Herod, who is um, barely Jewish and the ruler of Judea, appointed by Rome. Um, so the Herodians would be interested in the conversation because the 
nature of the conversation has to do with how we are to relate to those in authority over us. So this is how they start the conversation. Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, which is true. But it is dripping with irony here because their intention is to flatter Jesus in order to hide what they are really up to. And so the point is there is deceit in their hearts. They are lying about what they are really thinking about Jesus at this point. You would think that they had learned by now that you cannot trick Jesus. Well, how are they trying to trick him? They're trying to see if Jesus is either someone who will rock the boat through leading an insurrection uh, against Rome in Judea, or is he someone who will not rock the boat and be submissive to the authority that Rome has put in place? And so really the nature of the question is to see which direction Jesus will go. So here we need to remember uh, some of the past of what the Jews have um, been through in that relationship with Rome. And then also to remember ourselves um, what their future is going to be um, quite soon. So we do know that during uh, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a group called the Maccabees who trained for a actual uh, battle, uh, combat with uh, Rome and that they were horribly defeated. And um, that very much is in the memory of uh, Judea at this time. Um, they were not successful at all um, in trying to stand up against Rome. So that would be in the minds of the Pharisees. On the other hand, for us, for, it is good for us to remember that in 70 AD, the emperor will destroy the temple and Jerusalem. And so there is a day coming uh, when Rome has had enough and they end up destroying um, particularly the most important, important symbol for the Jews, which was uh, their temple. We're going through a season right now that I hate. I've been in Idaho for 23 years. I don't remember this happening anywhere else that I have lived. But Idaho has a season called fly season. Um, I don't know how many flies I've killed in my house in the last month or so, 
Um, very, very annoying. They fly around your head. They fly around food. They like to bump themselves into the window. They're not particularly a threat to me. Um, they're not going to uh, sting me in any way or hurt me in any way. They are just annoying. So if we were to talk about the relationship between uh, Rome and Judea at this point, we might say that the Jews were just annoying to Rome the way flies are annoying to us. There is no real threat that the Jews will win in an attack for their freedom. They just sort of are annoying to Rome. So that's kind of a backdrop into whether or not we are to pay taxes in that period of time. At this point, we need to know that most Pharisees and certainly the Herodians want no trouble with Rome. They learned their lesson from the Maccabees. And so it's very important to them to know that Jesus is not going to try to start a political insurrection because they are afraid. They're afraid that they will lose the amount of toleration that they have under Rome's rule, particularly the toleration to worship as they would like and not to worship the emperor. But they are generally afraid at this point. Um, they don't want Jesus messing with the peace that they have. But here we have another irony in the story because in order to get Jesus crucified, they call him an insurrectionist even though Jesus tells them over and over again that he is not. And so the question is posed, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? The text tells us Jesus knew their evil intent. He even calls them hypocrites at this point. The question is posed, but Jesus knows what they're really up to. So let's talk just for a few minutes about the meaning of the question and the meaning of Jesus's answer. First of all, this is not a text really about taxes. And it's not a text about tithing which I've heard some preachers actually kind of squeeze the passage um, into giving God what God deserves. We need to remember that, particularly in Matthew, Jesus has repeatedly said that this world is not his kingdom. This world is not his kingdom. He is a king of another world, the kingdom of God, which he does proclaim is near, but it is not the kingdom of the earth that Jesus wants to conquer. Sometimes, though, <clears throat> we can make um, 
too striking a contrast between um, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, sometimes we think when Jesus is talking about a different kingdom that we aren't supposed to interact with the world at all. Uh, we are to live for that kingdom only. And so um, in doing this, sometimes Christians sort of take on an attitude of isolationism. Um, we are going to withdraw from the world and live in our own little communities. Um, I think it's clear in the New Testament that we are not called to isolate ourselves from the world. For example, how can we evangelize the world? In Paul's words, uh, how can we be ambassador, ambassadors of reconciliation if we are to isolate ourselves? And yet some Christians um, tend to do that. Why do they do that? Um, I think it's out of fear, fear of being contaminated. I understand the fear. I just don't think that that is the attitude in which we should live in the world. But also, if we talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world as, as two separate, uh, what we come up with is uh, what I would call an assumption of dualism. In other words, if we misunderstand Jesus, um, we could come up with the idea that our material lives, our bodily lives, um, don't matter to God. That God is only interested in our spirituality. Um, we really need to fight against this. It is a idea that was perpetuated by, first of all, Plato in his philosophy, that the body is the prison house of the soul, and what we need to do is get out of our bodies because they are inherently evil. And then it was also perpetrated by the Gnostics, which is an early Christian heresy, who also tended to um, talk about the body as being evil to such a degree that they say that Jesus Christ did not have a real body. He did not die a real human death. And so we do not want to be dualists um, as Christians. And so we have to rightly understand the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Um, there have been lots of people who have tried uh, in Christian history to work that out. But I at least want to say today that it is um, should not be an option for us to think that God is only concerned with our spirits and not the way that we live our lives in our bodies. So what is Jesus concerned about here? If it's not taxes, if it's not tithing, I believe that what Jesus is trying to point out is there is an appropriate way that we interact. I'll use the word politically. I do believe that um, God wants us to be engaged in our civic understanding. But what he doesn't want us to do is to idolize. Idolize. Um, the political situation, idolize our material and bodily life above God. 
And so here Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees, you really have your priority and your loyalty um, mixed up, as he's talked about in these other parables that come before this conversation. He's challenging the Jews at this point, the Pharisees in particular, that they have their priorities messed up and that they are trusting not in God, but trusting in the law more than God. It is possible then to idolize the law instead of God as God is. Uh, theologians like to talk about this as something called linguistic idolatry. Uh, it's a big fancy word. What it means is that we put God in a box, we define our religion, and then we worship the God in the box and worship our religion instead of God who is above all of that and has revealed God's self to us and yet remains so mysterious that we could never confine God. And as soon as we do that, we do, interestingly, idolize who we think God is instead of worshiping the true God. That's your theology lesson for today. A lot of times in my classes, for those who don't know, I'm a professor at NNU. I teach uh, church history and theology to primarily ministry students. And so, um, particularly in the class called the History of Christianity, um, I don't want to just teach them the facts about what happened in the early church. I try to lead them into a conversation that this happened, so what? So what? What is this text? In this case, the New Testament. In this case, the book of Matthew. What does this have to do with now? And that's actually the role of a preacher each week to do the kind of interpretation of scripture where we look there into the written word of God, which reveals to us the living word of God, Jesus Christ. And we make that translation then, that application into the present day. So what? We've read this text, we've gotten some background. Um, so what? How does it challenge us? today, and I think it does. So if we go back through the passage, I want to ask us some questions. First of all, are we trying to trick Jesus by a subtle hypocrisy? In today's um, culture, in today's um, landscape of what Christianity is and is not, um, sometimes it is easy for us, maybe in front of other people, but maybe even in front of God, 
to portray ourselves, to portray ourselves differently than what is going on in our hearts. And Christ continues um, to challenge particularly the Pharisees, but also us. And Paul takes up the mantle to challenge Christians in the New Testament. What is in your heart? What is in your heart? The word integrity actually means to be integrated. Same root word. If we are to have integrity, it means that what is in our hearts then um, flows out of that into the way that we live our lives actively. And the point is that our insides match our outsides. And so the very word hypocrisy means that you are acting in a way and your heart um, betrays you that you are betraying others by hiding um, maybe the Christ's word here, evil intent. And so we need to ask the Holy Spirit to um, convict us, to search us, to know our hearts, and to lead us to a deeper work of transformation um, so that we can live out um, not just holiness of heart, but then holiness of life, because holiness of heart, as it should be, works itself out in how we live day to day. The second question uh, I'd like to pose to all of us, in what sense are we idolaters by putting what is material in front of of the kingdom of God. Now again, we don't want a dualism here. And I want to point out that right now it is extremely difficult not to focus on our bodily life in light of COVID and our material life in light of the um, growing insecurity that we have as our economy seems to be diminishing. So first of all, let's just recognize that right now it's really hard not to put our full focus on this insecurity that we feel. We need to acknowledge that it is real, but it's very, very difficult to make sure that we're not putting our focus so much on that that we neglect to focus our eyes on Jesus. As the book of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We do that to make, maintain our loyalty, that God is God to us, that we have not replaced God with other concerns. And so may the Holy Spirit challenge us in our idolatry. Also, one of the problems for the Pharisees is that they idolized their own worldview. They idolized their own opinions. Also during this time, very difficult not to idolize our own opinions, particularly during this time in the United States. Um, you probably know 
what I'm referring to. We are to be humble. We are to be teachable. We are to um, listen to the voice of God, which sometimes is blocked by how attached we are to our own opinions. So may we not make idols of our own opinions. And then a question, our text says that these uh, disciples of the Pharisees, when they heard Jesus answer, were amazed at Jesus's wisdom. They were amazed at Jesus's wisdom. Are we amazed at Jesus's wisdom for us? I mean, this could go in a lot of directions. Let me just make a suggestion. Sometimes we think that God has arbitrarily decided which commandments are most important and that God will hold us accountable for those commandments and that God has um, set those up so that we know that he is God and that we are to be obedient uh, in a sense. But if we look a little deeper, we understand that God um, has set a standard of life so that we might flourish. I mean, you can look back in the Old Testament to any of those commandments, and we understand that if we break those commandments, sure, we offend God's sense of justice, but God put them there um, so that we might avoid those things that actually disintegrate us that cause us to live less than a flourishing human life. God has set up um, how we are to live. I would also suggest that any of the commandments that you look at are actually commandments to avoid anti-love. Look at the 10. They're all about love. You cannot steal from somebody and love them. And so God wants us to be in relationships, loving relationships, so that we might flourish as humans. This is the wisdom, and I would say the love of God for us, God's beloved. Well, where do we end up? What happens in the end? of this little story, this little narrative, as we are moving toward the cross. Well, we are told that the Pharisees' disciples were, in the end, amazed at Jesus' wisdom, and they went away. They went away. It's an interesting question to ask, well, where did they go? Did they go back to the Pharisees? Did they report what um, this exchange was like? I think I want to read between the lines a bit and say perhaps they did not go back to the Pharisees. And so I'm reminded of the wise men. If you remember the story of the wise men, uh, a different Herod, 
wanted to make sure that they returned to him to let him know where the Messiah was so that he could go and worship him as well. The wise men were wise, sort of like Jesus here. They were wise enough to know that Herod had evil intention. And so they do not go back to Herod, but they go back by a different way. Perhaps these disciples of the Pharisees are changed by this encounter with Jesus. They certainly are amazed by him and his wisdom. Maybe they are changed as well. May we be changed as we encounter Christ in our daily lives. We were made for more than just to be forgiven. When we are justified by Christ, when we come into relationship with him, he sets us on a path of true transformation so that we can become all that God has created us to be. Well, it's been good to stare at my screen. I wish I could stare into your eyes. Um, but may we all seek the Holy Spirit um, and the grace of God to help us um, truly be in this world as Christ seeks for us to be. As we go to the next week's passage, we continue on our journey to the cross. Um, but I hope you have a good week and, and keep your focus and your eyes on Christ.